Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. How can historians meaningfully and ethically research past experiences of sexual violence? What tools do they need to uncover a subject so intensely emotive and yet often accessible only through sources employing the dry legal or clinical language of bureaucracies? Ruth Beecher is a social and cultural historian researching the response of UK community health practitioners to sexual violence against children in the home. Rian Keyes is a social and cultural historian who's currently exploring medical legal responses to sexual violence in post-colonial Anglophone Africa. Together, they're part of a welcome-funded research hub called SHAME, an acronym for Sexual Harms and Medical Encounters, which explores the links between medicine and psychiatry and sexual violence. In this conversation, part of a series of collaborations with History Workshop, Ruth and Rian spoke about the often surprising dynamics of the histories they've uncovered and the strategies and supports they've developed for navigating their own emotions in conducting such emotionally challenging research. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for asking us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mary Beth. Um, so I thought we'd start with the title that you suggested for the conversation, which is Bureaucracy and Emotion, which on the face of it is kind of an incongruous pairing. So I wondered if, if each of you wanted to talk about how you arrived at that topic for the conversation and how it reflects what you're doing in your work, how your work is bringing the histories of bureaucracy and emotion together and, and why those two should be studied in tandem? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great question, Mary Beth. And I think, I think you're right that they do kind of look like really odd bedfellows, I guess, sort of bureaucracy and emotion. Like what's, what's the point of, well, what's the place of emotion in bureaucracy? It's a really solid question and I think for me working on kind of colonial histories the histories that I work on tend to be sort of quite focused on bureaucracy and certainly the traditional historiography is really focused on on bureaucracy and that's partly due I think to the nature of the colonial archive so it's really institutionally focused um, tends to be mediated through the views of European bureaucrats and and for that I mean usually white men and I suppose kind of coming out of that is is the nature of colonial racism um, so if we engage with kind of the histories of colonial law and psychiatry which is what I I look at in this latest project um, it shows us that that quite often African communities including women and girls and sometimes especially women and girls weren't really afforded a, a sort of emotional life by colonizing bureaucrats and medical professionals so often we see the essentializing and racist nature of, of things like ethno psychiatry and legal discourses they kind of argued that Africans were psychologically different to Europeans it's really clear for example in discussions of forced and early marriage which was the focus of my, my doctoral research where and, and 
Brett Shadle has worked on this as well. Colonial officials had a really hard time deciding when girls were considered old enough to marry. So emotional maturity was an aspect that was discussed, but often colonial officials considered that African girls did not have the same emotional responses as their European counterparts. I think there's kind of a a specific issue as well when we think about histories of bureaucracy and emotion in the colonial context when we're thinking about sexual violence. So as Lynn Thomas and, and Megan Vaughan have both kind of written about relations between Africans are often reduced to the physicality of sex. So whether that's in concerns about girls migrating to the urban areas in in sort of the mid 20th century, and there was the idea that girls who might be following a a man that they'd chosen to marry, um, there were concerns that they'd sort of become sex workers and, and they would sort of otherwise sort of become sort of sexually licentious, I guess, was was the terminology of the day. You also see it in discussions around HIV and AIDS um, since the late 1980s, where there's a lot of of attention to how sexual behaviour fuels the the AIDS pandemic. There's not really been a lot of attention to how these phenomena are really rooted in emotional frameworks, which is especially problematic, I think, when we look at colonised contexts and and African contexts in particular, because of the historical uses of of myths of hypersexuality to dehumanise and degrade African populations. So writing about sexual violence in this context is obviously quite challenging because we don't want to replicate those kind of colonial hierarchies and and offensive stereotypes. So I think bringing the study of emotion to bear on the subject matter really gives us as historians a way to, I suppose, navigate some of those pitfalls. And and it's not always easy, but but it's kind of a way around some of those things, I think. I guess I'm coming from a very different direction to to Rianne. So in terms of why I want to bring together the histories of bureaucracy and emotions, and I think we'll say a bit more about our our own research in a minute, but broadly I'm interested in medical and nursing professionals in the UK and how in the 1970s they began to have this role in detecting, (laughs) kind of in close quotes, child sexual abuse. So it really is a story about professions and bureaucracies and yet when you think about child sexual abuse it's usually invokes very strong emotions so you know they might be fear shame anxiety disgust blame those sorts of negative emotions usually and so I was interested in doctors and nurses or psychologists who were called upon to make it part of their remit Did they acknowledge those kind of emotions? Did they experience those emotions in the professional context? Did they talk about them? And if you look in in what I would call the more bureaucratic archives, it's very hard to find emotional responses there. I think when Rianne looks at colonial archives, she's looking at these records. They're written by white, usually male elite. And you'd assume that they would be very different to what I would be looking at. But in fact, where you look at the court records, Rianne, there are voices (laughs) of um, of people who are victims or survivors of, of sexual violence and, so, and sometimes perpetrators of that as well. And, and actually the records that I look at are, are sometimes devoid of those voices altogether. So, you know, the medical and social care records of living individuals are restricted. So I don't get to see the see those or to hear those voices. And of course, if you're trying to research children's history, it's particularly difficult to gain access to children's records or even records that kind of mention children in a, quite a peripheral way. 
So I have to look at bureaucratic records, medical journals, the kind of trade journals that a doctor or a, a health visitor or nurse might be reading, training manuals, textbooks, records of inquiries into sort of child abuse scandals, deaths or other sorts of situations where things are considered to have gone wrong. And they're often couched in this language, which is very bureaucratic. And there's no reference to the emotion in those usually. And yet we know that at the same time as these materials that I'm reading were produced, especially in the 1980s, there was huge media attention to child sexual abuse. And it was full of these emotions of outrage and sadness and anger and guilt and skepticism and sometimes fervor. So, you know, survivors were speaking out in certain fora. Um, they had their own organizations springing up. Women's magazines were starting to publish articles about incest, as, as it was then called. And then there were these scandals that I sort of mentioned in relation to the inquiries. So Cleveland or Orkney, we, we might talk more about those later on. So one of the, the, the things that I'm really interested in is what role did emotions play in the evolution of practitioners thinking? and their actions in relation to child sexual abuse, or sometimes their non-action, their kind of ignoring of it. And there's some really interesting historical work going on in, in this arena. And I'm thinking of people like Alison Moles and Agnes Arnold Forster, and they've had a recent um, great edited collection come out, Feelings and Work in Modern History. And they start from kind of acknowledging that emotions rarely take center stage when you're thinking about a work setting. And, and they're really thinking about gender in relation to that. So, you know, they're encouraging us to think about emotional labor, what value is attributed to that. And then they point out that that is women's work. That's work that's traditionally being linked to the home, to children, to kind of domesticity. And I think then you come around to kind of the fact that previous waves of awareness, if you like, around child sexual abuse in the family, um, or as some historians have called them, periods of moral panic, they've coincided with, with the high points of feminism as well. And that 1970s wave of awareness around child sexual abuse certainly did. But it also really coincided with a shift in gender in terms of medicine and psychiatry, where you've got lots of women coming into general practice, into pediatrics, into clinical psychology and child psychiatry. And these are especially in community settings and the balance towards female has really shifted there. So that's very interesting to me. I'm not sure if I've got to the bottom of it, but basically you've got these women who are becoming increasingly involved in what would be, you know, be child abuse prevention, if you like, and treatment. And at the same time, you've got many feminist activists and, and, and survivors um, of sexual violence who were involved in campaigning and starting to deliver services in, in this kind of earlier period of my study. So I kind of talk about the late 70s, the 1980s here. But then as child protection becomes this kind of site of expertise, if you want to call it that, the gender balance becomes increasingly female, but the system becomes really, really bureaucratic at the same time. So I'm trying to understand that kind of complex change over time and how it plays out in different professions that would have something to do with child protection, if you like. And I think there's been a disdain for the emotions in medicine and psychiatry traditionally when it comes to those practicing the profession. So I'm trying to understand, are doctors still expected to be stoic, you know, as in to not feel or to not show emotions? And of course, the other kind of meaning of stoic, which is to kind of 
not, I guess, to accept pain without complaining about it. So all of these things seem really significant to me in terms of child sexual abuse. And I'm wondering whether as women moved into positions of seniority in nursing, in psychiatry, in medicine, did they have to make a greater shift to kind of protocol based, apparently scientific rationality in the way they in the way they performed, if you like? And did that move them away from acknowledging the kind of emotional aspects of uh, of child sexual abuse in the family? And I think it became really, really important in relation to child sexual abuse, because with physical abuse, which kind of really came to, pro uh, to prominence in the 1960s in America and the 1970s here, it could be corroborated much more easily by x-rays, by, you know, dental, uh, dentists, pediatricians. Sexual abuse, it, it would soon become apparent, was not so easily diagnosed and spotted and verified. So that contributed to lots of controversy in the 1980s and, and beyond about the signs of abuse and about the behavioral and the emotional indicators and also brought us into kind of issues around emotion and memory and what was valid and what could be accepted. So kind of debates about truth and lies. So it seems to me that you can't really reach an account of, of what happened over the time and the changes over time without trying to get at the emotional aspects of it, as well as the kind of bureaucratic histories of it. So interesting, both, both of you. I mean, I've got a million questions, but I wondered if before sort of getting into the commonality of what you're doing, just giving each of you an opportunity to talk about the research that this focus grew out of. So it's put into context in terms of how these issues of bureaucratic language and bureaucratic procedures and norms as a sort of lens for getting at very complicated and highly fraught histories came up for each of you. So the project that I'm working on is looking at the medical and legal responses to rape and sexual violence across Anglophone Africa um, between 1920. Um, so really kind of looking at when concerns around women's status and welfare became a, a subject of international concern through institutions uh, like the League of Nations, but also around some fairly high profile scandals around things like forced marriage and violence against women in British African colonies um, and then ending up in in sort of 1985 so kind of thinking about the emergence of kind of the discourse of, of women's rights as human rights in in the 1980s but also kind of just before or just as the HIV AIDS crisis was was coming to prominence so kind of you know except that that kind of changes everything in terms of discussions of kind of bodies sexuality sexual violence so what I'm really interested in or the question that got me interested in this was the fact that although there's a lot of national international and, and also local policy journalistic attention to gender-based violence on the African continent so particularly around issues like conflict related sexual violence of which there is kind of this huge literature but also child marriages um, which as I say my doctoral research focused on and things like female genital cutting which again has a, a huge literature attached. These issues generally haven't really been very well historicised. So what we find is that current debates, whether that's in policy arenas, whether that's reports by NGOs, whether that's journalistic, or, or just kind of the way that we talk about these issues, they often fall back on really ahistorical ideas of, of tradition 
and culture. And it really, I think, erases the local specificities. It also reproduces, I guess, colonialist or neo-colonial ideas about modernity and civilization as contrasted to what's termed kind of primitive behavior. I think it, it also ignores the fact that, that gender-based violence and, and sexual violence as part of that is historically and socially contingent. Um, and I think another point to make is that if we reduce these these sort of issues to to kind of questions of of culture or tradition we're really sort of obscuring the fact that you know violence against women and girls gender-based violence occurs in the global north too and and men men are well predominantly men are, are violent in in the global north um so if we if we reduce it to just these issues of tradition and culture we're we're really just kind of erasing that that kind of global history so I, I think kind of this this kind of lack of historicism um, or historicization if that's the word um, is changing so there's some really interesting work coming out of histories of South Africa so Liz Thornberry has has written a really interesting book about kind of notions of consent in the 19th century Eastern Cape um, Chet Franch is doing some really interesting work and Emily Bridger has a huge new project so Emily Bridger Exeter has this yeah huge new project on sexual violence in in South Africa but in general, the historiography as it relates to, to Africa um, has focused on either, as I say, conflict related sexual violence or the big one sort of in the historiography from, I guess, the 1980s has been interracial sexual violence in settler colonies. And for this, what I mean is the perceived threat of violence against white women by black African men, rather than an examination of white men's violence against black women, which was, you know, which was, which was a thing in settler colonies. And we know about the kind of high levels of interpersonal violence of, of all sorts in settler colonies um, from the work of people like Brett Shadel and Matt Carasinito. And I think it's also also really important to kind of think about this focus on conflict related sexual violence. So the anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom and, and indeed lots of others have called for attention to the wider context of violence against African women and girls outside of conflict situations but also I guess seeing the connections between peacetime and, and conflict related sexual violence rather than things that are discrete phenomena and I think conflict has been something that I've also been interested in um, but I think what I'm trying to do is attend to this broader history. So what, what my project does it looks at questions around sexual violence within a much broader imperial and international frame so I examine them across Anglophone Africa as a whole which I think is quite unusual. So the key questions I'm asking are how have international, colonial and post-colonial legal, medical and psychiatric structures impacted on African survivors of sexual violence? And, and what really have been the experiences of complainants as they navigated those structures, whether it's medical treatment, whether it's the criminal legal system or you know, other aspects of the colonial bureaucracy that they had to navigate? And what was the role of medical personnel in identifying and prosecuting sexual violence or indeed, as I'm finding, more often minimising women and girls' experiences, but also kind of zooming out a little to think about some of the, the sort of big ideas. So how did shifts in colonial governance and, and modes of governance as, as kind of the 20th century went on towards decolonisation? How did, how did shifts of governance or ideas of anti-colonialism, international development 
universal human rights and also changing medical ideas relating to the physical and psychological harms that could re result from sexual violence. Um, how did they really influence debates around and responses to sexual violence, so both in British African colonies, but also the independent states that emerged after decolonisation? So it's a it's a fairly big project and it, it works on several levels, but I'm undertaking focused case studies on Ghana and Kenya, which are really interesting case studies for a range of reasons, but I'll just pick out a few. So Kenya as a settler colony allows us to look at important broader questions like racial dynamics. So recognising that Kenya had a sizable Indian minority, as well as white settler and black African communities and some of the interesting ways that that racism plays out in that colony. Whereas Ghana is really interesting because the legal system saw the involvement of African lawyers and also the introduction of juries far earlier than other colonies. So that really allows more access to African perspectives than sort of elsewhere on the continent. So I think they're two really interesting, but quite difficult different case studies. So my source base is predominantly the colonial archive with all of the attendant issues of bureaucracy that, that we've talked about. I look, as we said, mainly at legal records, so court transcripts, um, medical and psychiatric reports created as part of these and so on. So as historians of law on the continents, I'm thinking about really important work by people like Richard Roberts, Elizabeth Schmidt and, and others. Um, court records are one of the few areas where you actually find women and girls at all in the colonial record. And so they tend to exist in the colonial archives where they're causing a social problem or, or there's some kind of dispute around women's status, um, whether that's legal disputes or, or something else. But these records often contain women's and girls' testimonies, although they're, they're mediated by the white men who record them and through kind of issues of interpretation and so on. Um, but they do contain girls' and women's accounts of traumatic events such as sexual violence, but also, and I think importantly, strategies of resistance and also kind of clues about emotions and how women and girls felt about things like consent, relationships and, and ultimately love. Using emotions is, is quite useful for getting at that. But I think it also means that we can problem problematize and sort of unpick the idea of bureaucracy if we look at look at these things through the lens of emotion so there are after all sort of individuals behind these reams and reams of bureaucratic papers and forms with specific numbers on them and there wasn't sort of a single official mind um, if you will um, to draw on on kind of older colonial histories which, which posited this kind of official mind, that, that doesn't exist. And there's not a, a single way of, of dealing with sexual violence because colonialism isn't a monolith, right? And so one of the, one of the quotes that I really like just in general um, is from the historian John Lonsdale, who draws on the Nigerian playwright Wole Shrienka um, when he invites us as historians to leave the dead some room to dance, which I think is a really lovely quotation. And um, so I think just kind of being mindful, I guess, of kind of the day-to-day -day interactions and individual perspectives that lie behind these kind of reams of bureaucracy. And I think as well as historians like Brett Shadle, Jock McCulloch and Dane Kennedy, have shown us colonial archives and especially the case in settler colonies are full of anxieties as well about the precarity of colonial rule 
Um, and we see this in, in a lot of these concerns around interracial sex. And I think the history of emotions really allows us to access those questions. So just to talk about something that I'm, I'm working on right now, I'm thinking three questions around access to medical treatment and mental health care for survivors of gender-based violence in Kenya. And that's a real sort of live and present issue been spotlighted by a recent Human Rights Watch report on the impact of the pandemic. So these are these are kind of ongoing debates and, and issues. So medical legal scholars like Sarah Rockowitz and uh, Cynthia Wangamati have shown us that the services for survivors of sexual violence today in Kenya are under-resourced and that medical legal evidence is often limited, poorly collected and preserved. And as I think it's important to say, as indeed in many other areas of the world, um, so kind of comparing this to the backlog of, of rape kits in several US states, so it's not a, a peculiarly um, Kenyan or African problem. But I think what I'm trying to do is really to kind of examine the historical roots of this, this underfunding and the impacts of that on survivors of sexual violence. So to talk about Kenya, colony was declared in 1920, but it didn't have a dedicated police surgeon or indeed a specialist forensic lab until the late colonial period, so sort of 1949, 1950. So medical examinations and the treatment of survivors of sexual violence was therefore undertaken by, for example, doctors at local hospitals. So whether that's kind of state hospitals run by the government or kind of smaller missionary hospitals. And healthcare in colonial Kenya was also segregated. So so-called native hospitals received less funding than their counterparts dedicated to European or Indian communities. So uh, what I'm finding is that women and girls reporting sexual violence were subjected, I guess, to, to what I call a patchwork of care. Whether they could access medical examinations and care at all was a, a big question and often kind of depended on, on geography and urban versus rural considerations. But the treatment that they received if they could access that, that care at all depended on factors like how they were racialized by colonial, colonial policy and the personal views and prejudices to so hear emotion comes in again of those mostly European male medical doctors. So what I'm finding is that medical interventions in assaults on African women and girls, where, where those medical interventions took place at all, were often quite cursory and were conducted by doctors who often didn't speak the same language as the women that they were examining. The reports are often quite short, quite blunt, and focused on things like physical injury, so um, the kind of corroboration that Ruth talked about earlier, but also the veracity of the victim's story, as well as speculation about for example, previous sexual behaviour and, and things like virginity. There's often evidence of African girls and young women's what's termed as resistance to medical examination, which is often coded in the archives by these authorities as evidence of untrustworthiness or, or untruthfulness. And I guess attention to emotions allows us to go beyond these racialized and, and really quite heavily offensive portrayals of African women and girls as they navigated those systems and allows us to examine issues like fear and trauma in the aftermath of sexual violence. And what I do is I contrast the cursory treatment of African women and girls with the more attentive care provided to European women. Um, and that's not to say that that care was, was great at all, because it's still kind of <laughs> still the kind of early half of the 20th century but certainly in comparison it's a lot more attentive and particularly the case where the perpetrator was seen to be 
an African man. So in those cases, the psychological and emotional well-being of women and girls experiencing rape or sexual assault gets much more attention. And this has some real impact, I guess, in terms of the outcomes of those cases as well, given the sort of expert status that gets afforded to medical officers in sexual violence trials. And and I know Ruth has, has talked a little bit about expertise and probably will talk a little bit more about expertise. But these racialized responses and which are often mediated, I guess, by the anxieties and emotions of colonial officers and medical officers themselves, but they really had a, a detrimental impact on outcomes in the criminal uh, legal system so so that's kind of something that I'm I'm working on right now wow that was really interesting Rianne really interesting really interesting and I could just ask you loads of questions now and um it's it's uh, one thing that really strikes me that I was I was thinking when we were preparing as well is like how much race is in the foreground of what you're researching in Africa and how hard I'm finding it to get at questions of race in the UK and in the period that I'm looking at Mm -hmm. so that might be something we want to talk some more about (laughs) but my research focuses on the kind of professions that coalesced around child protection or rather specifically the protection of children from sexual abuse within the family since the 1970s in the UK. And I suppose it's important to first say what I mean by the family. So I mean fathers, male carers, brothers, cousins, family friends, neighbours, people, and they are in the vast majority men and boys who are known to the child. So I'm not looking at unknown strangers or unknown adults grooming a child. These are men and boys that the child knows and already has a trustworthy relationship, uh, trustworthy, a trusting relationship with, or is in any case reliant upon. They're adults that the child is reliant upon. And I think when I started writing the book that I hope I will finish next year, I thought to use the children's commissioner terminology. So children's commissioner looked at this issue in 2015 and used the term intrafamilial child sexual abuse. And that's what you'll see in lots of kind of current social work or medical writing about this. And it's used to convey the fact that those responsible are not always adult males, you know, they may be boys, for example, and there's a high proportion of of kind of child sexual abuse in the family that is committed by an older child or or young man rather than father or stepfather. And of course, on very rare occasions, women do perpetrate sexual abuse. But I've actually become really more and more uncomfortable with the term of intrafamilial child sexual abuse as I've kind of looked at the history a little bit more, because I do think that it does hide the fact that it is men and boys who who do rape and violate children of both sexes in in the vast majority of cases. And my interest is in the medical, but it's in the broader sense. So I'm including nurses, general practitioners, um, psychologists who might work in a school or a community clinic or psychiatrists. And these were professional groups that were really, I suppose, first encouraged and then sort of directed to spot child abuse, child sexual abuse specifically then, from uh, the late 1970s into the early 1980s. And we don't have mandatory reporting here like they they have in the United States, but but there are very strong professional obligations for people to report child sexual abuse if they spot the signs or if it's disclosed to them. 
But interestingly, in the decades since that kind of first push in the 1980s, I guess, child sexual abuse in the family has not had a very high public profile. So it's kind of been replaced in the minds of practitioners by abuse on the internet, child sexual exploitation, institutional abuse by sports figures or church, you know, religious groups. So I mean, that's in terms of mass media attention, but it is also very much the case in the professions where there have been these sorts of different waves of policy and information sharing and awareness raising about these other forms of abuse. So I I became interested in these professionals who uh, had been called upon to notice the signals and signs that children were being sexually abused at home. And one of the first things happened was people asked me, why don't you look at social workers? Social workers are the ones who are responsible for noticing if children are being sexually abused. But I think this misunderstands the kind of basic structure of and the functions of children's social work in the UK, where a child who's being sexually abused would only come to the attention of a social worker if they were known to that that service for another reason. You know, usually if someone has referred them for another reason and they're working with the family so it might be physical abuse it might be all sorts of other forms of abuse it's it's more rarely sexual abuse and certainly resource constraints mean that statutory social work is constrained so it's kind of rationed so social workers are not out wandering our communities on the lookout for children in distress although you know it might it might seem like that sometimes from the press in terms of the kind of ideas of surveillance in the state But those people who could notice that a child was in distress are are working in community services. So they are your 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 family doctor. They might be your midwife or your health visitor. They might be the school nurse based in your child's school. They're sort of in open access services or they might be in services for children dealing with emotional or behavioral problems. So back in the 1970s, that would have been child guidance clinics. Later on, it was child and adolescent mental health services or CAMS, as as it's called now. So, you know, these were the professions that possibly had privileged access to children and what we would now call non-abusing parents, but in effect, usually meant mothers. Health visitors would go and see mothers at home. Family doctors would be spoken to about quite a wide range of very personal problems. It could be sex, violence in the home, mental health problems. So there was this idea back in the 70s that with the right information, they could see and hear signs of abuse and intervene early. And basically, the idea was that that would prevent further harm to a child. And these ideas solidified international policy and they became procedure and became an expectation, a kind of a requirement that was set down by professional bodies, by the government, by employers. This idea of identifying child sexual abuse at the earliest possible point. I mean, there was resistance, of course, from some parts of the professions, but nevertheless, these responsibilities were set out and they included listening to children, observing closely. Was a child attempting to disclose that they'd been victimized? Were there physical signs or indicators through their behavior that they may have been abused? And Historical scholarship on child sexual abuse hasn't really looked at this. It's looked more at at the role of race and class in what could be named and ignored. So I'm thinking about people like Linda Gordon in the US or more recently Lynn Sacco. You know, Linda Gordon looked at large numbers of, of child records from Boston at the kind of turn of the century and looked at the ways in which female 
kind of helpers, if you like, were able to name some of those things, but mostly it was because they were talking about what they considered to be a very different class of family to the ones that they themselves came from. People like Lynn Sacco, who looked at the great difficulty that doctors had in kind of admitting to themselves or to the courts that sexually transmitted diseases were transmitted through adults having sex with children. And I'm thinking of Lucy Delap and Adrian Bingham here, who've looked at different sources from the 20th century around child sexual abuse. Louise Jackson, who's looked at Victorian England. Stephen Robertson, who's looked at New York. So they've all looked, I think, at race and class. And then there's been a kind of a another kind of genre which has looked at the symbolic significance of the sexually abused child. So I'm thinking about the child in relation to wider anxieties in society. So people like recently Stephen Angelides, but before him Harry Hendrick, James James Kincaid. But scholars had paid less attention to these sorts of practitioners who were called upon to play a role in the movement against sexual abuse. And although research tells us that children rarely tell a doctor or a nurse or a mental health counsellor that they're being child sexually abused, so they more often don't tell anyone till they're an adult, or they might tell a teacher sometimes, they may tell their mother. But if you look at adult survivor accounts, they do say that they tried to tell people and they do mention that they gave out signs through their behavior. They wanted someone to ask them directly uh, when the abuser wasn't present, whether something had happened to them. So there was a kind of a mismatch there. It's a conundrum, you know, with practitioners sort of saying, well, children don't really tell till they're adults and adult survivors saying, actually, I did try to tell and I did try to show someone that really bad things were happening to me, but nobody wanted to hear me. So this is what I really wanted to look at, uh, the kind of history of these community health practitioners and their response to this seemingly intractable problem. And I wanted to situate that within social history and the kind of development of those professions over the last kind of 50 years, if you like. And I suppose what I'm really arguing when it comes down to it is that these expectations were placed upon community-based doctors and nurses and mental health staff since the 1980s. They were expected to predict and prevent the sexual abuse of children by men they knew, but it's completely incongruous because the, there's a sort of a surface acquiescence to the need to protect children from that sort of abuse and to intervene early, but actually it doesn't happen. And there's all these cultural and social, social and structural barriers that prevent them from fulfilling that role. So it's not a kind of... Um, it's not a blame, a blaming of professionals that I'm engaged in. It's really trying to understand why do, you know, do policies and procedures continue to act like this is something that should be happening and is happening when in actual fact it very rarely happens in this, like, what is the history of that? And I'm using archival research to kind of explore the messages that were targeted at practitioners and to some extent their kind of public reactions to those. And so I guess from that perspective, it really is a history then of bureaucracies and professions. But I don't think that can tell the full and evolving story of how knowledge about child sexual abuse in the family was assimilated or absorbed or ignored, you know. So then you have to attend to the emotions and the feelings and the mood and how they affected people's actions or didn't. So I'm also um, collecting new interviews with practitioners 
So I've interviewed about 50 practitioners and then I've recorded, I think, 18 to date full oral histories. And I think they will be a really valuable resource for future historians as well, because I thought when naively when I started the project that I would find lots of existing oral histories with doctors, nurses, etc., psychiatrists that I would be able to sort of pull out where they've talked about child protection or child abuse. But I couldn't find those. So I think that that it'll be helpful to future scholars as well who are looking into child protection more broadly within the health services. And and then I, they're sort of following the kind of, I guess, life history narrative. So I don't sort of march in and ask people about child sexual abuse. I'm really looking at what were their motivations to train as a nurse or a doctor, a psychiatrist or what were their on, on the job experiences? How did they first come into contact with child abuse and then child sexual abuse? How did they respond? And then trying to think about gender, race, class, kind of barriers to them and how they kind of were encouraged and prevented from fulfilling their potential as protectors of children. So I think that's the core of what my research is trying to really look at over this period since about you know 1960s 1970s and really looking at where were those professions at the beginning of the period yeah so I might leave it at that for now and and see where the conversation goes next that's great thank you I mean it it strikes me that there's there's obvious real differences between your projects but there is this commonality to an extent of of time frame I mean you're both looking in part at the second half of the 20th century, where these issues of sexual violence and sexual assault, sexual abuse overlap with the rise of, of different sorts of liberation movements and movements of, of human rights. But you're also looking to find a way into histories that don't leave traces and find a way to use bureaucratic sources to untangle a sort of hidden history of 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 emotion and and to an extent bureaucratic language is a sort of in itself a kind of defense against the untrustworthy volatility of emotion I suppose. I think you're right Mary Beth that one of the key things that we're trying to use these bureaucratic structures to really unpick those histories which as you say can be quite challenging for reasons whether that's social and cultural obstacles to recording those histories or whether it's deliberate bureaucratic actions to occlude them we're both looking at at those kinds of histories but also I think we're both looking at topics that or a topic that hasn't had that much attention from historians. So so sexual violence, not really a massive topic of historical inquiry. And I think particularly this overlap, which we both consider in terms of, of kind of the relationships between medicine, psychiatry, psychiatric and, and medical professionals and sexual violence, those things aren't really brought together. I think from my perspective, a lot of scholarly attention to sexual violence on the African continent tends to be from political scientists or anthropologists, criminologists, legal scholars. There really isn't that much historical work on the issue. And and certainly when I I came to the project and was trying to just find a literature to be writing into, there's not really that much around. There are obviously some notable exceptions I've mentioned earlier. Stacey Hind is doing some really interesting work at the moment on forced marriage in 
conflict situations as part of a, a broader historical project on child soldiering across the African continent. But there's really not that much scholarship, historical scholarship on the issue. And I think for an issue that gets a lot of a journalistic and policy attention, that lack of historical scholarship is maybe a little bit surprising. There's also this literature on medicine and psychiatry on the continent. There's well-known sort of older work by people like Jock McCulloch and Megan Vaughan. But I'm also thinking here about really emerging scholarship. So I've been engaging with Holly Rose Ashford's work recently on reproductive health in Ghana, which is really fantastic. And also Nana Kwashi's work on psychiatric care in West Africa. So there's a literature on medicine and psychiatry and there's a literature on sexual violence. But those, those fields, and I think this is the same to a lesser a greater extent outside of African history, those fields don't tend to speak to each other very much. So I'm really excited to be able to bring the insights from those fields to my own work. And I'm really grateful as well, I guess, to have the time and the funding to be able to do it, thanks to the support of of the Welcome, who who fund both mine and, and Ruth's research. So it's just a real sort of privilege, I guess, to be part of that research hub and, and have the time and funding to, to really sort of look at these particularly difficult hidden histories almost. Yeah, I think... I mean, similarly, you'd think there would be a lot of work done on the kind of histories of medicine and psychiatry and their engagement with children and harm to children. But there's surprisingly little work. There's people like Nigel Parton, who's a professor of social work, Corinne Mechahal, who's a professor of sociology. You know, so people are they're not historian historians, if you know what I mean. They are very much historicizing things. But we're really I suppose. Yeah, we're really grateful to the welcome because we do get to have these conversations with sociologists, anthropologists. It brings these kind of different ways of thinking about things. And when you were talking, Mary Beth, around, you know, the kind of bureaucracy as a as a protection, if you like. Absolutely. And like I was thinking of Sarah Ahmed's work on complaint and who is being protected by the procedures. It's the institution rather than the people who have been hurt by, you know, the, the acts of others. So, you know, trying to apply those sorts of thoughts to child protection is really interesting because clearly I'm not with the cynics who say, there's a new child protection profession built up and made lots of professorships and lots of funding out of this because I think actually child protection is horribly underrecognized and underfunded. But undoubtedly, there are careers made out of different approaches to child abuse, the same as anything else. And undoubtedly, there are organizations being protected. And we know from all the more recent scandals, you know, the the Me Too and Jimmy Savile and all of that, that absolutely very powerful people being protected. So it's so that's one of the things that makes bureaucracies really interesting, something that is designed to give a consistent kind of fair treatment to people regardless of their race class etc ends up sort of not protecting them at all and and being a framework for people to hide behind that's so interesting but I mean in terms of our team it's multidisciplinary it brings us many benefits in terms of kind of understanding and the shame project sexual harms and medical encounters has a, a very long list of associates as well as kind of the core team that Rianne and I are a part of and we've had symposiums we've worked with artists creative writers it's extremely stimulating we were thinking like it's almost to the point of blowing a mental gasket sometimes it's so there's so much you're like I don't want another idea because it's just too much to think about but I think 
you know, the public engagement side of things, every project, I guess, that's funded now and or comes out of university has to have that. But I, I do think that our research is really actively engaged all the time with the kind of what a very wide constituency. And that's because Welcome have funded that and enabled us to do it and even given us extra money for the Shameless Festival. And I know that George and Rhea and Alison have already spoken about that, so we won't talk about it. But just having to think and prepare for events like that, I think, really affects how you write then or how you you know come up with ideas so thinking about the shameless festival that we had at at Battersea Arts Centre with WOW I was trying to think of a an activity that would be positive because it's sexual violence and we're trying to find ways to encourage people to imagine rape-free worlds so we built a timeline of historical moments where there were really memorable acts of resistance and I just it was fantastic and and I think Joanna Burke, our principal investigator, our professor, what she's tried to do is to use the funding and to use her experience of historical research into these kind of topics like pain and violence. And she's been able to draw people in from all over the world. That helps us to reframe and, and, and not to just be thinking from a kind of a white British perspective or a white Irish perspective or, you know, to really try and widen our lens and to be able to challenge, like Rianne said, around the specificities of, of sexual violence, whether that's about place or time. And, you know, I, I worked in children's services for many years. I had absolutely no idea how contested roles were around the protection of the child back in the kind of 70s and that point where doctors were just being drawn into what they called social medicine and this whole arena that wasn't medical. And they were like, well, I can't diagnose that and I certainly can't cure it, you know, so why are you asking me to be involved in it? So it's been wonderful to be in that team and I think to be in dialogue with the present and not to have to be sort of embarrassed about that. So I wondered if you both wanted to speak a bit to the place of emotion within A, the historiography of, of sexual violence, and B, within your own experience of navigating highly emotive subjects, not just in the archives, but in your own writing and in conveying these as part of the public engagement side of the project. I suppose if I go back to the late 1970s, when this kind of latest wave of awareness about child sexual abuse hit the United Kingdom, if you like. I mentioned already that historians have looked at kind of earlier waves of awareness, but this 1970s wave came out of a concern around family violence more broadly. And so we had white, the term wife battering. And then we had um, C. Henry Kemp, who turns up in every account of child abuse and its kind of recognition in America and the UK, an American pediatrician. And he came up with this term baby battering in the early 1960s and he, he he deliberately chose this emotive term to kind of get practitioners to sit up and take well to get doctors to sit up and take notice of the fact that injuries to babies and very very young children might be caused by their parents and so I guess this this latest wave of history, if you like, about child sexual abuse, it's, 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 it's born in emotion and it's born in a deliberately kind of invoking emotion or, or trying to provoke emotion, which I find really interesting. And then the kind of subsequent concern about child abuse and ultimately sexual abuse flowed out of these two channels. One was feminists and survivors of rape and what they called then called incest. 
The others were was the pediatricians and psychiatrists concerned with children. So in different ways, they're both calling attention to the prevalence of, of child sexual abuse and to its impact and its seriousness. And in the UK, both of those kind of groups, if you like, were very influenced by their counterparts in the United States. But the history of both countries and how it subsequently developed is very different. But there, there, there was some crossover between the two groups, but actually it was quite limited, you know, and it, there was this simplistic medics equals objectivity, feminists and survivors equals subjectivity. And then when you get to the historiography, what I found really interesting is that some historians who've written about the idea of moral panics and, and awareness of child sexual abuse as, as a period of moral panic, they tend to write in ways that suggest that they themselves are morally outraged about the very fact that everyone should suddenly pay excessive attention to the sexually abusive children. So I'm thinking of Philip Jenkins, for example, who uses words like epidemic and flood to kind of describe reactions to sexual abuse um, in the 1980s. So he's insinuating, isn't he, like that it's feminist hyperbole. And he describes the writings of people like Florence Rush, Diana Russell, Anne Burgess, Judith Herman, feminists. You know, they were feminists, but they were also social workers, journalists, sociologists. They described their writings as arriving in a cascade from 1977 and reaching flood proportions by 1984. And then he talks all about their statistics. They're ambitious, embellished, remarkable. And after 1974, they're swelled by mandatory, mandatory reporting. So he's, he's kind of accepting in his text that child sexual abuse is highly prevalent. But at the same time, his language is implying completely the opposite to that. You know, a panic is is implying an irrational reaction to a sudden crisis. And so he's kind of implying this is sudden in a way that compromises the credibility of anything that anyone might say about it. And so I find that intensely irritating. So that's my emotions coming to the fore right there. And I would say that certainly in the UK, from the research that I've done in the archives and from the oral histories that I've gathered, the climate of the 1980s in general practice in nursing, in primary care, it was not one of moral panic. I think there, there's an idea that there was a moral panic and then the first moral panic was that like, oh my gosh, there's this hidden scourge of child sexual abuse, we've got to do something, that everyone rushed to do things. And then that when Cleveland happened, and basically in 1987, a couple of pediatricians in Cleveland identified child sexual abuse in a large group of children and removed those children to hospital. And it was a national scandal and the government declared an inquiry but, you know, one of the stories that's told is that at that point, everyone suddenly retreated. You know, it reminds me of like Hamilton or something. Advance, retreat, advance, retreat. Um, well, I think if that's a moral panic, it's like the shortest moral panic of all times, basically, because it started in the early 1980s and Cleveland happened in 1987. And I that's not what I'm finding. What I'm finding is that there was only a very tentative awareness amongst health visitors and GPs in the 1980s. There was some acceptance. Yes, this happens. We need to talk about it more. Um, but there was also resistance and the professional kind of infighting and the professional debates about what what is my role? They started, you know, in the 70s around physical abuse and they continued on as child sexual abuse came into the arena. And they were also not sure if 
violence, mental health, drugs, sexual health, relationships, any of that was part of their remit. So it's part of a kind of a wider discourse, if you like, around social medicine. Whose job is it? You know, is it my job? I would rather it wasn't in many cases, you know. And certain services were established, sometimes in the NHS, sometimes by survivor activists. But, you know, they were just getting going, really, I think. There was kind of this interprofessional debate around so health visitors was this going to be another case of doctors telling them what to do was their role to look after the normal child in inverted commas or should they be looking after the needy child you know clinical psychologists weren't even talking about it yet as far as I can see in the 1980s so there was all this variation which I think is is what you know what historical research is so good to try and get under the skin of and try and challenge some of the kind of memories of that time. And beneath all of these debates around roles and responsibilities, like you like you kind of alluded to, Mary Beth, around beneath the building of the bureaucratic framework, there was a range of emotions that were to do with fear and anxiety about this subject that had so recently been completely taboo, about getting it wrong, about the nature of the relationship to the parent, to the family, to the state, to other professionals, and a massive like avoidance of conflict, you know, so... And I think there were also feelings about the loss of control, you know, if I identify this problem and I'm a doctor or a psychologist, then I have to contact social services and or the police. And then I have very little control over what happens next with my patients, my families, you know, for health visitors, very gendered, almost 100% female population. If I voice a concern in this big meeting with all of these senior people present, I could be completely humiliated and belittled and because I don't have any so-called hard evidence for my concerns. So these are the, these are all the sorts of, I think, emotions at the very heart of all of that. And one of the questions that I'm interested in is, you know, could these health practitioners have fulfilled the role that was set out without interrogating their own emotional responses to child sexual abuse, or even to kind of sexual relations more generally, you know, and without a kind of space for reflection and, and support? And I think they probably couldn't and they, you know, or wouldn't respond to signs of distress from a child or encourage someone to talk to them without those sorts of changes. And that subsequent structural changes in the NHS have actually made it more difficult for practitioners to make meaningful relationships. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about relationship based practice and making space for that. But the structures of the NHS, even before COVID, make it almost impossible. You know, you're thinking about large group practices of GPs. You're thinking about health visitors who have corporate caseloads, which means they don't, you know, they can't just pop out and see families that they're slightly worried about. And you, and you see all sorts of professionals in the health service making very swift decisions about who would get anything more than the most cursory of services from them. I think it's really important to incorporate emotion and feeling when considering histories of sexual violence and colonial contexts, especially given the context that I've mentioned earlier, where colonised African people were in general not considered to have emotional lives. And you, you see this in, in a lot of the literature around the histories of colonial psychiatry. And also, I think, where responses to violence were considered in a very technocratic kind of way. So, so the bureaucracy really comes to bear on that. And, and it's such violence and violence against women and girls more broadly is treated as this technical social problem potentially requiring technical interventions but generally considered to not 
need any kind of intervention at all where it's accepted that intervention is needed it's always well we need to provide education or education will somehow be the remedy for these uncivilized people in massive quotation marks but there was no concomitant investment in education so the technical solutions were kind of alluded to but were never really implemented but I think also it's important to think through issues of emotion and feeling just thinking about the questions that you've both raised around who bureaucracy protects so in the 1930s in colonial Kenya there was a pretty big scandal about the forced and, and child marriages of, of women and girls, particularly in Western Kenya. And where this came from was this missionary from the, the Church Missionary Society, this guy called Archdeacon Walter Owen. And he was he was very popular with the um, colonial administrators. They referred to him as the Archdemon. But he's this very colourful character who sort of took up a lot of social issues during his long career as a missionary in Western Kenya. And he'd write a lot of really impassioned letters to um, papers like the Manchester Guardian. And he had lots of relationships with feminist groups within Britain. And he'd, he'd have these sort of long correspondences with them and with colonial officials in Kenya, but also the colonial office in London. He kicked up eventually so much fuss around forced and early marriage in Eastern Africa. And this particularly came to a head in 1937 around this case of a Tanzanian girl called Kekwe. We don't really know how old she was. She was anything between 15 and 20, depending on which bit of the archive you look at. But essentially, there was this scandal over this young Tanzanian woman who was convicted of manslaughter because she had stabbed a man who had essentially tried to take her to be married to his cousin. And what this prompts is this inquiry across the British African territories, where the colonial office essentially write to governors of, of all British African territories and ask them for an update on the prevalence of forced and child marriages and what's being done to, to combat that. And so what I've found in looking at that particular scandal is that Often you have people at the district officer level, so the kind of lowest, most local level of colonial administration. They're looking at it and they're saying, yeah, you know, actually, we do have these cases in our areas. We do have an issue with forced and child marriage. And then you see that as it gets passed up that bureaucratic chain to firstly officials at the provincial level and then all the way up to the governor of the colony through other steps in the bureaucracy to the colonial office and to the, the secretary of state for the colonies. And essentially, there's this white paper that's produced in 1937, which largely says, well, this isn't actually an issue at all. And if it is an issue, then education is going to fix it. So um, some of the work that I've done is to trace the ways in which at each level of colonial bureaucracy, the fact of these issues of, of child marriage and forced marriage is really occluded by these levels of bureaucracy. And then it raises that question of, well, Who's that intended to protect? Because it's apparently this inquiry into, you know, the welfare of women and girls in British African colonies. But actually, it's more about protecting the image, I guess, of the colonial endeavour, the idea that colonial rule is essentially a thing that is put in place to protect women and girls. So um, Gayatri Spivak's kind of famous formulation of white men saving brown women from brown men, right? So the welfare of women and girls is this real justification for why early 20th century colonialism absolutely needs to happen. And so when there are these scandals around women and girls' welfare, that's a real challenge to their 
colonial enterprise and I, I suppose like liberal morality justifications of colonialism. And it's also a period as well where the League of Nations is asking some quite incisive questions about the welfare of women and girls and there's international oversight of, of certain territories like um, British Cameroon, for example, because of the League of Nations mandate system. So if you look at that from the lens of emotion, it becomes this kind of almost this exercise in anxiety where if the real situation is known and the outcome was a, a white paper that said, yeah, actually, this is a big issue. And, you know, these missionaries are absolutely not overreacting. There is a problem. Then, you know, what's that going to mean for the position of colonialists? What does that mean in settler colonies for the myth of the moral superiority of, of white settlers? It's a huge pit of anxiety that's best avoided. Therefore, sort of through these levels of bureaucracy, will just kind of completely obscure that there's an issue going on at all. So I think there are these real issues with thinking through the ways that these problems are addressed. And I think that there's also the issue that failure to attend to feelings and emotions also really dehumanises survivors of sexual violence. And this often has a racialized aspect. I suppose one of the things with this work is that you have a huge sense of responsibility, but it's also very, very complex. And sometimes that can be a little bit paralysing. Like one of the things that happened in the 1980s was that physicians, pediatricians used to go to conferences and show really graphic images of like very, very tiny babies who'd been sexually abused. And that was like partly because their colleagues couldn't recognize what a sexually abused child's body looked like um, if there was such a thing, which they later decided there probably wasn't. But also just to kind of shock people, I think, into taking action. And then we're in a position as historians where we don't want to replicate the violence that has happened to to mostly women and, and sometimes boys and girls. We don't want to replicate that. But how do you convey the kind of reality of what happened to people, you know, without replicating and without encouraging voyeurism as well? So I think there's quite a lot of sort of ethical and methodological things. For me, there's two things like one is Sometimes I think I have a very strong emotional reaction to different positions or language taken. For example, I think Rachel Hope Cleves has just released a really good book about the writer Norman Douglas, but she talks about intergenerational sex. Why? Why? Why are you calling it that? Uh, you know, it's like I agree that we shouldn't monsterize abusers. It doesn't serve us to do that. But I don't agree with the language of adult child sex or intergenerational sex. And certainly attitudes to forms of sexuality and context change over time. Absolutely, they do. But the fact that Douglas was protected by his celebrity status to be able to do these things, to groom boys and to abuse um, young people and children it, it's not fundamentally different from the sexual exploitation that has is in the news now around polit politicians celebrities writers and has been ignored more recently and similarly uh, you know there are current arguments about children's rights children's agency children's sexuality that I feel they take an intellectual position that can be defended but I think they're deeply unhelpful, you know, in the real world. So I read Stephen Angelide's book in which he accuses what he calls a kind of a child abuse brigade of silencing debate about children's sexuality. And I just think there's, it bears no connection to the real world of practitioners that I've worked with, you know, like practitioners who are pediatricians or social workers or, 
you know, psychologists, they're trying to deal with individual children's lives, make really difficult decisions, establish what is a child's choice, what is coercion, what does the law say, all of these, you know, so I think there's what's useful as well as what can be intellectually defended, I think. And I, I suppose I want to understand what a doctor 50 years ago would think about that and 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 how has that changed and ultimately I just try and keep in mind why I wanted to research this because I think that sexual abuse is a total violation of a child's integrity their emotional integrity their bodily integrity and their sexual agency and I just think that the terms can be used to mask the fact that you've actually got a very small body and a mind that is not developed to its full reasoning potential as an adult who is being used by an adult for their own ends you know whether that is a kind of perverse violent end or whether it's for sexual pleasure but it's not to meet the child's needs it's to meet the adult's needs and I'm interested in the kind of historical um, circumstances of when people choose to ignore that in society and when people choose to articulate it and tackle it. So I think from my perspective going to the archives it's a, it's a site of encounter between kind of us as historians and the material and I think there's this traditional idea that the historical craft is kind of an objective one but thankfully I think that's quickly receding although not nearly as quickly as perhaps I'd like and there's a lot of scholarship by people like Arletta Farge and others who've dealt really thoughtfully with the questions of, of how we as historians approach our work and bring our own histories, thoughts and emotions to that process. And Carolyn Steedman says that archives are places for feeling things, which I think is, is really nice and also really unavoidable. I think it's really important to be mindful of that and, and certainly our own positionality when we approach historical research. Um, and especially, I think, in the kinds of topics that, that Ruth and I are considering where we're looking at things that focus around power dynamics and also the production and performance of expertise and knowledge. I, I suppose on a more meta level or a more personal level, how we situate ourselves as experts and people with that knowledge. And of course, our positionality impacts on the questions that we ask and also the answers that we find to those questions. So that's something that I'm always sort of trying to be really reflexive about. And I think both Ruth and I bring histories of activism and practice to our work. We've both worked a long time before coming to this project in gender-based violence and, and child protection in a range of capacities. And I think it's also really important to note that given the prevalence of sexual violence in society many scholars working on these issues are also survivors of violence and bring those perspectives to bear on the work so I think another benefit of, of working in in the research hub that we work in is that our colleagues are self-consciously scholar activists and that this approach to work is embraced and, and seen as a strength rather than something that's treated a bit sniffily as a barrier to objective research. So I've been told in the past by some fairly eminent scholars like, well, you know, activism isn't really something that historians should be doing. And it's like, well, why not? Many thanks to Ruth Beecher and Rian Keyes for taking part in this conversation. You can find links to their work and the work of The Shame Project on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.